Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today is Season 10, Episode 5. I'm very happy to be talking today to Gesina Bullock-Prado. I'm sure you've seen her on TV as a judge of a cooking contest or a guest talking uh, to the audience about baking. Gesina is a master baker who has written several fantastic baking books, among them the memoir, My Life from Scratch, The Sweet Journey to Starting Over, or Cookbooks One Cake at a Time, Sugar Baby, Confections, Candies, Cakes, and Other Delicious Recipes for Cooking with Sugar, Pie It Forward, Pies, Tarts, Torts, Galettes, and Other Pastries, Reinvented, Bake It Like You Mean It, Gorgeous Cakes from Inside Out, and the new My Vermont Table, Recipes for All Six Seasons, that is out today. I love watching Gesina on television. She's got a relaxing manner that makes her a joy to watch as she convinces us to try the recipes she's creating. Her TV show takes us to the dreamy woods of Vermont, where she taps maple sugar for syrup and begs magnificent pastry creations. I know you're going to love my conversation with Gesina, and I'm going to take you right there now. Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm very happy and honored to be interviewing Gesina Bullock-Prado, who has written several fantastic baking books, among them a memoir, My Life from Scratch, A Sweet Journey of Starting Over to the Cookbooks One Cake at a Time, Sugar Baby, Confections, Candies, Cakes, and Other Delicious Recipes for Cooking with Sugar, Pie at Forward, Pies, Tarts, Torts, Galettes, and Other Pastries Reinvented, Bake It Like You Mean It, Gorgeous Cakes from Inside Out, and the upcoming My Vermont Table, Recipes for All Six Seasons, and it's going to be coming out um, in a couple weeks in March. Casina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd like to ask my guests about their youth and if baking was influenced by relatives, such as a mother or grandmother or anybody who may have been an inspiration. Who influenced you in your youth? Well, I, you know, I grew up in both Germany and in the States. So I had the influence of both my Southern Alabama nanny and my German Omi, who had very different approaches to food, but both equally appealing to me as a child. Um, but I think I was so lucky in that my, since my mother was an opera singer and you know on the move in Europe, I got to experience a myriad of cafes and pastry shops and from Austria to Germany, where my family's from, to Italy, that it was all inspirational and really lived within me and inspired me from a really young age. But I also have to say that I grew up with the German fairy tales uh, that are far more gruesome if you've ever seen them than American ones. And one of the ones that truly influenced me maybe more than anything else was Hansel and Gretel, the witch herself. And yeah. uh, her house made of sweets. And I, I thought that was the most, I was like, you know, this is the way to live. I like, was totally ignored <laughs> the whole uh, oven for baking children part. I was just fixated on this fantasy of living in a house with cookies for shingles and gingerbread for walls and you know and candy embellishments i just thought so i have to say the witch and hansel and Gretel, the hex uh, was was my was my lady influence <laughs> i just i just ignored the the bad parts about um her lifestyle you mentioned um that you lived in germany before moving to virginia as a five-year-old do you remember any of the german baking that you had when you were young and did any of it stick in your mind well, well, we 
we uh, lived in, in Austria and Germany with my, um, so my mother was an opera singer, so she was on tour. So we would either be in our apartment in Salzburg where um, she was in the Landestheater, which is a um, opera company, or when she was on tour, we would live with my family in Germany. My, my grandmother and my aunt and my cousins. But my dad was in the States, he was in Virginia. So when we went back when I was five, um, we continued going back and forth to Germany. So we spent most of our summers there. So it was this constant um, change between kind of American influence and German influence and kind of how it shifted throughout the year was interesting and really obviously, my the way I ate changed uh, seasonally as a child. You describe yourself as a sugar fiend, but I read in interviews that this was very much an issue in your home when you were growing up. Uh, the, it was very a health conscious home. And I remember there was kind of a backlash against sugar in the 70s. Did that influence your baking and your love of uh, a pastry and candy later on? Well, I, my mom was a true health um, aficionado. She was, she was really at the forefront of no processed foods. We were very plant-based to, and then at, we were primarily vegetarian. And then I think when I was, uh, around 10, we went completely vegan macrobiotic. And, um, I really, I hated every moment of it. And aside from the fact that I loved sugar and processed foods and all those things, which are bad for you. Um, I, it really affected my gut health. Like I, I was just, there was so many things in there that were, were making me uncomfortable just physically. But thankfully when I would go to lunch, my, I would have like this homemade um, spelt bread that was falling apart with vegan spread and, you know, apples, yeah. all this stuff. When you're a kid, you're like, this is just so not what I want. And then my <laughs> friends would have kind of the, everything was orange from Cheetos to the cheese to all the, yeah, you know, and the bread was spongy and didn't fall apart. Um, I had access to my friend's food to a large degree. So I was, um, I didn't eat a ton as a child uh, because I was a very picky, picky eater, mainly because I was an anti healthy eater. I have changed as an adult. I, I do eat green things and healthy things. And I'm, I'm a much more moderate eater, but as a child, the backlash was real. Yeah. In 1995, you and your sister co-founded the production company Fortis Films, where you would produce such hits as Hope Floats, Practical Magic, and Miss Congeniality. You spoke about this in your book, Infections of a Closet Baker, and I wanted to discuss this book with your listeners. Can you talk about this time and, and how it kind of influenced your move to being a food writer and um, a baker? Yeah, well, I mean, before that, through college and through law school, which I, I was in law school in Los Angeles, um, I baked my way through my schooling, um, and it was my way of stress release. Um, I baked constantly from the second I had free reign in a kitchen. And when I studied from the for the bar, I instead of studying, I baked instead, constantly. And I passed the bar without a problem because I think I was the most relaxed human in that testing room because <laughs> I had just baked away all the stress and managed to retain all the information I needed to pass. And then so when we ended up uh, building our company, I continued to bake through 
parts of that kind of existence that just weren't comfortable with me. So I just didn't like Los Angeles, um, kind of the entertainment industry in general and that lifestyle. And so baking would be my comfort when I needed to get away from it. And not a lot of people were eating gluten. They still aren't. So, I mean, it was like my secret at home. I was making breads and pastries and I wasn't telling anyone. Um, and then when we were building this company, my mom, uh, who was the health nut, uh, was diagnosed with colon cancer and it, it went relatively quickly within five years. She, she had passed. And, um, in that, I'm very sorry. Oh, it happens to so, so many of us, we all go through this similar thing and it's, it's horrible for everyone. Um, but it was one of those things that was life-changing as it is for everyone when that happens. And so I baked my way through taking care of her, uh, and, I went through her recipes and she said, she, she's very German, very practical. She says, you know, I'm, you know, because I'm going to be gone, you, I'm going to show you what all the recipes are because we have family recipes for baking, even though she was a health nut. When it came to like holidays, she was a, the mistress of confection. She was a beautiful baker when the holidays came around. So I am in possession of all of our family recipes. Um, and baking got me through times that were stressful, that were sad, that were frustrating. And once she passed, it was clear that I was doing something that gave me so much pleasure um, that I should really think about it as something to uh, focus my life on. And my husband agreed. Uh, so that's how baking went from being as it is for, I think, a lot of people who find baking as a profession, that it went from being something that essentially saved me emotionally to the thing that elevated me as um, it, as a professional. I want to touch on that for a minute because I worked in a law school with students and I saw how what they went through. And the bar is a really um, very tough time, but you did something brilliant and you kind of created a touchstone for yourself that provided some structure. Do you think that that kind of was something that you went back to again and again in life when things were, were stressed out? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, I, what is interesting, some people find baking to be stressful in that it can be very persnickety and you have to be exacting. Um, but I, I think something I learned from my mother was that if you have a goal, if there's something that you want to achieve, um, and she was very good about this too. She would tackle some very complicated recipes. If failure was your first result, then instead of being so frustrated that you gave up, you just sat back and went, I'm going to learn from this mistake. And I'm going to understand this process through my failures. And that was such an influence on me and that, and that instead of it being something that was negative, it became something of a positive It's oh, I'm going to be an expert in this if I keep, <laughs> if I keep failing at it. Um, and at some point I, I will be, a, I will master it. And I think that is why it was something that was so um, relaxing for me because I never saw it as um, a place where things could go wrong. I saw it as a place where I could get better. 
I, I myself um, turn to baking a lot of times when I'm stressed out. And I think people often think it's about the eating part. But for me, creating something and having it turn out well when I'm really stressed out is taking some order out of the chaos. Is that kind of the same for you? Yes, 100%. I think, I think my base nature is to be impatient and disorganized and uh, a bit chaotic. And I think baking, instead of frustrating me because of those core elements of me, have helped me shift uh, and change, uh, at least in baking, and that I have been able to contain that chaos that seems to be my base nature and um, become a more patient, um, methodical, thoughtful person through baking. Um, and I think a lot of people could benefit from it, from baking as something that provides release and structure in their life when things do feel chaotic. That if you just measure out your ingredients, you take a breath, you read your recipe, you don't rush through it, um, and you allow the process to take over rather than you trying to rush the process. It can be, um, it can really, it's like, it's a great meditation. So jumping onto that, from that to the topic of you owned a bakery, Agassina's Confectionery in Montpelier, Vermont. Can you talk to me about this time and what it was like transitioning from the film studio work in Los Angeles to owning and operating your own bakery in Vermont? Yeah, I th we often called it the uh, bakery by mistake because uh, <laughs> I had we had moved to Vermont. Well, first I we fell in love with Vermont. I fell in love with Vermont because my husband um, took me as when he was courting me to New Hampshire to Dartmouth College, which is right across the river from Vermont. Um, he went to Dartmouth and we went to a football game and he was you know you know saying oh isn't this beautiful New England? This is I've had this experience here. And we were living in Los Angeles and he knew how much I loved Germany and mountains and, you know, kind of sweet villages. And I loved New Hampshire, but then we drove across into Vermont and I, and just, I felt I was home. I was like, oh, I didn't think I would ever find this in life, but here it is. Um, and so when we went to, when we left Los Angeles for Montpelier, I had intended to go to get my master's in pastry. And um, I was at the same time, uh, because I cannot sit still, I had a mail order business for um, macaron, the more rustic style from Nancy. And my business took off and I did not have the time to go to culinary school. And so we bought a space so I could have a commercial um, kitchen, but it turned out that the zoning required me to actually open it as a storefront hence the accidental pastry shop. Dogs are barking, sorry. You're good. Um, so what, what we ended up doing is opening up a full-on cafe, bakery, pastry shop, confectionery in Montpelier. And had we known everything that would have gone into it, we would never have done it. But having gone into it mistakenly, uh, we had no idea. We had no idea how hard it would be, how much uh, sleep we would lose. Um, but we're so glad we did it. It was just, it's one of those things I look back on and I go, what I know now, would I have done that again? And absolutely. Uh, we found a community. I found that um, I can work from 3 a.m. to 7 p.m. 
quite happily and as long as it's baking. And I realized that I actually have more of a social um, community muscle than I thought I did. <laughs> I always thought I was a true introvert, antisocial, but when it came to baking, it opened me opened up my heart to my community and I realized, oh, I am not such such a curmudgeon. <laughs> when I'm doing something that I love, I have more time to open up my heart to people as well. How long after you stopped, um, after the bakery closed, where did you continue to wake up at three o'clock in the morning with the alarm that you have to get out of the bakery? Oh, I transitioned almost immediately. I, I felt that, that was not a, that was not a problem. I tend to naturally wake up at three thirty exactly now, uh, but I <laughs> sleep. Um, and there, when I for my school when I teach, I wake up at five, uh, so which is actually quite a bit nicer than waking up at three three thirty. But I still, I still need to wake up whenever I am in baking teaching mode um, or kind of that professional mode. Waking up early is a balm because no one is up, everything is quiet, and you get to prep and think about your baking day in solitude, which is such a beautiful thing. I'm kind of the same way myself. I like getting up really early. I'm an early riser. No, nobody else in the family is. And I love getting up baking while nobody else isn't up and around in the house, in the kitchen specifically. And it's just kind of nice to be up when it's quiet and have that peaceful time to go through the baking. It is. And there's something too in the wintertime where it is darker longer in the morning. I feel like I'm accomplishing so much more, even if the timing is exactly the same. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's darker longer boy, it's so exciting. Like when you see the, the sun rising, you're like, look at all that I have done before the sun even came out. You know, you mentioned the baking school and I want to talk about that. Uh, you own a baking school now in Hartford, Vermont called Sugar Glider Kitchen, where you're an instructor there as well. Tell me about Sugar Glider Kitchen and how you were inspired to create it. Well, I've been teaching now for, I want to say 12 years. Um, and I first started teaching at King Arthur Flower when my first book came out, Confections of a Closet Master Baker, which then turned into My Life from Scratch when it went to paperback. And Susan Miller, who ran the baking school at King Arthur at the time, invited me to teach a class. And I was quite nervous about it because I'd never done it before. And so I said, fine, I, I'll bake something from the book because that was a purpose to promote the book. And, um, and when I did it, I realized, wow, this is something that I, I love this almost as much as I love baking. Um, and so I started doing it more and more at King Arthur Flower. I taught some at, in Maine at Stonewall Kitchen and I traveled around the country and I would do these classes. And then one day when we were, I was teaching at Stonewall Kitchen, my husband had come with me and he kind of entered in the back of the class towards the end and was standing there watching me teach. And when I finished, he looked at me and he goes, you need to do this all the time. Like, this is your superpower. You are great at this. Um, and I knew how much I love doing it. I knew how well students responded to it, but having him acknowledge it and see it and as forever my partner in crime, looking at me going, this is something that we can, I will help you accomplish 
uh, it was the impetus to opening Sugar Glider. And, and we did it almost immediately after he made that statement. We transformed a part of our house that I had used as like a testing uh, bakery into our classroom. And we never looked back. You mentioned, you talked about the teaching and how it was a natural thing for you. When I see you on television and when I see you on your YouTube channel, you do have a very natural affinity for the camera and talking and teaching. Were you surprised at this yourself when you saw yourself on camera for the first time? Um, I, 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 th I think that there's something in um, my family genetic makeup that we just are good at that. Um, but I also knew from law school and from um, college that I, I'm a very good debater and I was the moot court queen. Like if you, if you know anything about law school, everyone has. Oh yeah, I do. <laughs> and I won all the moot court competitions. It's just my, it's my jam. Um, and so I think that that translated to how I am just comfortable in a situation where when others would think that they're on the spot, I just feel great. I just enjoy it. Um, but there's a, something a little different between teaching through a camera and teaching in person. Um, I'm really good at teaching through a camera, but I am really great at teaching in person um, and being a hands-on instructor because I find that a lot of people are very intimidated by baking, first of all. And then when they come into an an environment where maybe they've seen me teach on TV and they come in and they are kind of like, Ugh, I'm a little nervous. Um, my job is to make them very comfortable and almost be maternal to all these people that come into my space and welcome them and make them feel comfortable and then kind of lead them through a task, whether it's making it clear or puff pastry in a way where I just take away fear and just give them as much knowledge in a really entertaining way and uh, so that they feel comfortable with any task that I ask them to tackle. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. You have a TV show called Baked in Vermont on the Food Network. Can we talk about the show a little bit and what it's been like to produce this show? Well, we have stopped filming um, and I'm concentrating on the book now, which is fantastic. But it was it it was great because I was able to in smaller segments kind of convey my love of baking and my knowledge of baking to a much wider audience. And I think one thing that I is kind of uh, has been changing in food TV is that it's become very competitive, right? It's very, it's all competition and very little teaching anymore. And if you look at the older programming, 
it can almost be very dry teaching. And then it shifted from that to more um, home styling and kind of lifestyle shows instead of teaching. And then the rest is just competition. And I wanted to make a show that gave people information and um, kind of empowered them with the whys of baking because so often like people just say do this that and the other and they don't tell you why you're doing it or why it's effective or and then you and then you have no idea how to translate that to another recipe where that information could be really helpful uh and i i was so excited to be able to have a platform to provide entertainment in food but also to really give some pertinent information to people who might otherwise not want to bake. And I found that just wonderful and incredibly fun. How much um, influence did you have on the look and the um, styling of the show? Uh, well, it was at our house. So, <laughs> so, there yeah. was, so there were some things that they couldn't, that they couldn't really change. There were other things that, um, just by nature of it being a, a corporation that has very specific mandates, like some of the, there were many things that I wanted to do that I simply couldn't do. For instance, I wanted to concentrate on just one recipe per episode so that all the information would be out there. And, and I feel like I am capable as a teacher of making that infinitely entertaining and watchable. But because the way that their programming is mapped out, they want to shove more recipes into one episode and to create this kind of um, backstory that you're doing it for some some party, you know. So so you have all these like different elements infiltrating this 20 minute segment. So in 20 minutes, I can give you a ton of information about shoe paste and eclairs and make you feel empowered to make to tackle any recipe that calls for shoe paste but in that environment you can't do that so that was constraining um but that was pretty much but otherwise i feel like i still got to teach uh interesting things and and people really responded to it and to this day i have students who come from all over the world to sugar glider kitchen who who were affected by the show who loved the way that I baked and cooked and taught and they traveled to Vermont to do it in person. You served as a panelist on television programs such as Beat Bobby Flay, the Food Network's Christmas Cookie Challenge, and the Worst Cooks in America. What was it like filming these shows and was it was it kind of grueling? Was it kind of enlightening? Uh, was it fun meeting the other panelists? Well, in, in those shows, I did a couple episodes of each, and it's it's always fun. I mean, you, the work there isn't any real work because the competitors are are doing all of it. Um, I think it's exciting because you get to see really talented people ply their trade. I, the one that was the most work was when I judged Best Baker in America for Food Network, and we had i think we started with 12 contestants and we obviously whittled it down to one and we shot over maybe two to three weeks uh and 
first of all, it's kind of strange that you're choosing best baker in America when there are so many great bakers, there is not just one. Uh, but it is also very strange to watch people who are so used to having time to do their best and then all of a sudden being put under time constraints and being asked to make things that they might not know what they are. Um, and when you see people rise to the top and really meet that challenge, it's, it's incredibly exciting. But on the other hand, when you know their capability and you see them struggling, I, I felt terribly. And, but luckily in those situations, I was the profession, I was obviously the, the baking instructor and the professional in the room who was on the other side as a judge. And they let me go and give pep talks and um, help uh, things that you do not see uh, on the show, but I would be kind of bolstering people up in a very strange situation because we all knew very well that under other circumstances, they would be able to master these things we were asking them to do perfectly. But it's very strange to have to do it with a time limit with a thousand cameras and lights on you. So um, I loved being there for my fellow professional bakers. We had talked about uh, briefly um, my Vermont table recipes for all seasons from the TV series, and that's coming out in March. It'll be actually this is going to be airing on its release date. So that's going to be for people listening. That's going to be we're going to have links to purchase the books in the bio. Now, this cookbook uses dairy produce and other ingredients that are from all from Vermont, and, you know, local kind of the idea of uh, getting local items. What do you think for you epitomizes the Vermont flavor? Well, I th I think one of the things that uh, one of the things that epitomizes Vermont flavor is just homey tastiness. <laughs> so yeah. there there is a lot of dairy. We're known for dairy. We're known for maple, um, and we're also known for our incredibly short growing season. And I think what that does and allows us to do is to get really excited for things in season. So we never get bored. Uh, when I lived in LA, I longed for seasons. I longed for them so much. And you kind of get inured to the fact that, you know, there is fresh produce, shiny produce almost in season all the time. It just feels weird. Um, and oftentimes it's really flavorless. But when you live in a state where those months are precious where you can actually grow things, you just get so excited from every little thing that comes in season. And that's not to say that Vermont is different than anywhere else. It's just that I wanna convey this feeling that I longed for when I was in LA and that I now get to enjoy in Vermont of what it means to just sit back and go, what's happening right now uh, on this little planet of ours that's delicious and wonderful and that's inspiring. And we're just so lucky in Vermont that we have six seasons. I didn't make it up. This is, we go by six seasons where different things happen that inspire different culinary moods. Um, and I want to invite everyone to kind of like enjoy a Vermont vibe, no matter where you are, just to like slow down enjoy what's in front of you and 
kind of consider kind of in your soul, what is it that you're craving? What is the season telling you that you want to make and enjoy? And, uh, and I want to share that with everyone. Now, the book is beautiful. I've been, able, I've been lucky enough to be able to get a, an advanced PDF of it, and it's gorgeous. There are over 100 just amazing photographs in the book. I know that they wanted to base it on the TV show, but were you able to kind of have some input into the visual quality of the book and how it looked? Well, it was, it's interesting that this book is all us. So the, the show really, so what influenced it, the book as far as the show is that so many people who love the show really enjoyed the way that not only how I bake, but how I cook. So it, it, those two things are very different for a lot of people, but the people who came to the show loved both. And because I've always focused my books on the, the baking part of my life, um, I hadn't really ever considered doing a, a full-blown cookbook about how I cook, but hearing all these people who were fans of the show say, we want more of, of it all, uh, that's what influenced the book. Um, the publisher came to me and said pretty much the same thing, that we want you to do what you do so well on the show. And then all hands were off of me as far as like, this is what you're going to do. I we I essentially wrote this book as I lived my life through the year, that it is literally my table through what we consider our six seasons um, and the pictures, my husband took them. So we just, as I was developing recipes and testing them and perfecting them, and then we would have them at table, I would yell, Ray, it's perfect. And so we would set up our shots literally in the season in which they are laid out in the book. Um, so it was this wonderful, natural way of writing a, a cookbook that I'm never going to look back. I mean, this is the way I'm going to do it forever because it it was such a wonderful experience. And luckily, I mean, how lucky is it that my husband is an incredibly talented photographer <laughs> that I can just ye yell at while he's doing his day job and say, get down here, take this picture. So oh, um, he did the photographs? He did the photographs, yeah. Oh my God, he's really good. Wow. He's They're great. impressive. I mean, he, he is an artist by trade and he is a fantastic photographer. And because it, there's, we obviously, we know each other so well, we've been together for over 25 years. Um, and it's because this was in our home and I set myself a task of, I will not take a picture or do any styling that um, where I have to go out and like, get something. And by that, I mean, when you usually do a cookbook, you have stylists come in and you have all these, you know, the, a photographer from outside who comes in and they will set up a whole room full of um, stuff from napkins to plates and gigas that they set as prop dressing for your photographs. And I was like, nope, I'm not going to do that. If I'm calling this my Vermont table, I'm only going to use the things that I would actually use at my table. So it also is far more economical that you're not running around buying a bunch of stuff that you get for a picture. So all the pictures here are, are literally in the season in which they are in the chapter. And we had the best time just capturing what's essentially our life and food over a year. Um, like one of the things that I love so much is that 
if you look at the, you know, oysters Rockefeller, which are usually yeah. made of oysters, but we have, um, we had a maple tree. Um, we have quite a few maple trees, but one that had fallen down that we had to take down. And in the Prado way, we, we have left the stumps out next to the driveway because, you know, they're heavy. We, we're too lazy to haul them off. Well, as it <laughs> happens, they have now become the home of seasonal oyster mushrooms that are glorious. I mean, we have, we also, morels decide to visit us as well. I mean, we couldn't be luckier where we live. Um, and so I go and harvest those oyster mushrooms uh, and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny to make oyster mushroom Rockefeller? Because we also have Rockefellers uh, historically, literally in our neighborhood. And uh, oh my God. so I thought that would be so fun to kind of, as an homage, a little to my uh, vegetarian childhood, um, and also an homage to the oysters that have just, you know, volunteered themselves <laughs> to our table make something that would otherwise be, you know, very highfalutin and make it very homey and uh, attainable and very Vermont. And I had the best time just exploring literally the things in my backyard <laughs> and, and doing and doing things that just were delicious, but also tickled us. And we just thought were, it just made us happy. And I think that I'm hoping that's conveyed in the book. Oh, absolutely. I want to also ask, I mean, you've, you've written several books. Um, do you ever get tired of getting that initial first copy in the mail that you can hold in your hands? Never, ever, 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 ever. And this one was particularly exciting because Ray and I had done it together, but also because it, it wasn't just baking. Um, it was just, it was our food. And it was just so exciting to see things that, uh, I kind of take for granted, like the way I do some things. And I think that uh, like, for instance, uh, the way I make a beef Wellington, which is such a kind of time consuming, expensive endeavor. Yeah. And having grown as I've, we all know now, we've been talking for a while. So, you know, my up upbringing of very little meat. Um, yeah. Being responsible for meat now, I'm so sensitive to how it's handled and how it's cooked. I don't want to waste it. Uh, and beef wellington is one of those things that it's that in the extreme. It's the most expensive cut of meat, and you could really mess that up. And so I, I use my sous vide, which so many people here who are not like who don't know what it is, and they're they're good home cooks, but they they hear the name of it and they're like, that just sounds too fancy. But it's one of those tools that if you have it in your home, you will elevate your cooking without much fuss at all. And for things like meat and things like what I would call this a hidden meat in a, in a beef Wellington, because you cannot yeah. see how it's cooking and you don't want to stab it too many times with a thermometer because you've encased it in beautiful puff pastry. Um, I sous vide it to just under the temperature that I, that I want to serve it. So I, you know, I survey my, my dinner guests and I say, what is your preferred temperature? Is it medium rare, rare? And then I just sous vide it to just under that so that when I encase it and I, you know, when I put it in the oven, I know that the second that the puff is perfect, that the meat inside is perfect as well. And it's none of that, um, 
mystery. You know, when you've got all these guests, they're like, ooh, ah, and then you're like, what is this going to look like when I cut into it? It's so nice to have a guarantee when something is so special and expensive to get it bang on. And I feel like I was so excited to be able to share the things that I have found so helpful in my cooking life um, with people. And I think my very particular background of being raised vegetarian and vegan informs how I approach, uh, say like a big dinner salad that I want to be vegetarian, but feel like a meal. I learned that from being vegan and vegetarian growing up, but I also have the sensitivity of, I want to approach every kind of protein with respect and with knowledge, and I just don't want to screw it up. So the little tricks I've learned to elevate all of those things, I, I was really excited to share, and I think they're worthwhile um, just for everyone, especially when things are more and more expensive now, just with inflation, that those little things, little tools and tricks are so helpful for not only elevating your cooking and baking, but you know, keeping you from wasting money because it's like, these things are precious right now. As a star in the book and in the show, um, your home is a featured um, thing. And, I, and I'm really lucky to be able to have a window on it right now. It's so beautiful. And it's just really glorious to look at. I kind of expect like John Quincy Adams or, you know, one of our early presidents to be popping up at any second. Uh, it's just so gorgeous. I mean, I mean, what this, can you talk about your house a little bit and it just yeah. how beautiful it is for the people that can't see it? Well, it's called Free Grace Levitt Tavern. It's no longer a tavern, but it was back in the day and it was built by Jerusha and Free Grace Levitt in 1793 in Vermont, obviously, and not long after Vermont joined the union. So it's just, so it is a federal house. It's not, not colonial, it's federal. And it is one of those places that it just, the second we walked onto the property, it felt just like when we went, I, the first time I went to Vermont, when we walked onto the property, it felt like home. Um, and I like older homes. I love federal homes but the floors are just a little creaky. There's history in the house. People ask if, if they're ghosts and I'm like, well, if they are, they're very happy. And since it was a tavern, they're probably a little tipsy. Um, <laughs> and, but we also have just these really lovely stories of when they lived here, it was also that he was also the town clerk. They had their town meetings here. The church was just across the way and um, church was an all day affair, but the men folk during the winter would leave and get warm in the tavern and obviously have a tipple. And the ladies would have to stay with the kids in church, which is incredibly unfair. Um, <laughs> but there are stories of what it was like to be here. And, and, you know, in the winter, you would take a sleigh with a horse-drawn sleigh instead of obviously any other kind of vehicle. Um, and you hear these really interesting stories. And like during the War of 1812, when they had an embargo on English liquor of all kind, uh, Free Grace made a boatload of money uh, with, the, he called it potato whiskey, which I'm, when I think about it, I'm like, that's probably just vodka, but they called it because <laughs> they were growing potatoes here. And he made a mint. Uh, until the war was over and so there are these great stories and the house kind of reflects 
that kind of fun history. They're like, there's nothing door about it. It's just like, a, it's a really happy house. It does look, I mean, it just immediately gives the visual impression of, of uh, you just want to just like relax. It just yeah. looks really beautiful. Well, it's also not one of those houses where, and we're also, my husband and I, um, we uh, don't stand for ceremony. So we have his Star Wars stuff around and it's just, you know, we, we have our moments of whimsy everywhere throughout the house. And I think it fits well with how this house was built and the intention of the house was to be a place where people could relax and could be um, silly. I mean, you're going to be silly when you're when you're drinking something like Flip, where you're you're putting a hot poker into rum. So <laughs> now you've said in um, your information in your bio that you're working on getting your certification towards being a Vermont Master Gardener. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit and uh, what that what is required? Well, Vermont. Well, let the dogs do things. Well, for, I am an avid, avid gardener, and I am infinitely interested in when things grow here because it's such a short growing season and growing things that are native to Vermont so that they just fare better. And so UVM has a an extension program where you can get become a certified master gardener and you can do a lot of it online. So um, it looks like because of the book tour, I will have to wait till next year to finish my certification. But um, I just want to know more about the, the soil properties of the area in which I live, about helping others, because there's a volunteer component of it as well, which I find wonderful. Um, and, and I've also been growing hops, everything from hops to peaches to something called Apios Americana, which is a ground nut that's native to the area that you really oh, can't, wow. it's really hard to find. And I finally sourced two different kinds that I've been growing um, and they would grow near riverbeds and they vine up and twine up. And some people, when they're kind of canoeing down the river, think that they're wisteria, but a slightly purpley uh, burgundy color, they're gorgeous. And they're like, oh, why is wisteria growing here? But it's not, it's Apios Americana, which is like a groundnut, which allegedly would have been uh, at the original Thanksgiving table as the tuber rather than the potato. Um, I love growing things like that and exploring these things that have um, a basis in our kind of natural world in Vermont and that are just so interesting to explore. And hops is really fun because it also vines up and it smells great. And I use it in my cooking and to brew beer. So that's cool. Very nice. That sounds great. Oh, and saffron. I grow saffron, which is one of the things that UVM, the, their program discovered that our growing atmosphere is very similar to that of Iran where they grow saffron. And so now I grow about 100... 40 bulbs worth of saffron every year. Oh my God. Wow. That Isn't sounds that really gorgeous. Yeah. So just because of that, that program is so interesting and so about our kind of the, our plant world in Vermont and the things that we can grow. There's so much more once you learn what you can grow rather than you can't simply because of the, the short growing season. I mean, the fact that I can grow saffron and it's a fall blooming crocus which is kind of a shocker. Everybody's like, it's spring. It's like, no, it blooms in the fall, which is exciting because a lot I of things- I did not know that. Blooming. 
and you get something that's really expensive. It hurts. It's backbreaking work to pluck all those little strands, but it grows. Oh, yeah. It's really exciting. It's one of those things you're like, wow, look at that. So I want to ask you uh, as a last question, what's next for you? I had such a great time writing this book. I would like to explore doing more. I love writing period about food, but also the fact that we explored um, so many different ways of exploring Vermont's culinary background and future. And I think it translates to everywhere in America. I want to do more of that. Just my interest in gardening and um, food ways kind of lends itself to me doing more of this. I will always teach baking because I love it so much. But doing writing this book has been one of the greatest pleasures. The fact that I was able to do it with my husband as well made it even more exciting. And um, and it's just so nice to get the feedback from people who have seen the book, how much they love it and appreciate it and, and are really happy that I wrote it because they've been asking for it, uh, makes me really happy. And knowing that it isn't just about Vermont, it translates to everywhere about exploring the food in your area and the food that's in your heart. Um, this isn't confined to the things that you can just find in Vermont. It's confined to the things you can find everywhere. Casino, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. And I'm going to mention to the listeners that Vermont Table Recipes for All Six Seasons will be out today as of this airing. We have links to it in the bio. You can get it through all major retailers and at all better bookstores. Casino, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Casina Bullock Prado. Her new book, My Vermont Table, is out today. We have a link in the bio. You can purchase it through all major vendors, and you can get it at all better bookstores. Tomorrow, we have the added treat of Susan Gravely being on to talk about her book, Italy on a Plate, Travels, Memoirs, and Menus. Look for that tomorrow. Hope you're all having a great week and maybe getting a chance to cook something from one of our wonderful guests on the program. Until tomorrow, keep on cooking.